Hey everyone, welcome to episode two of the Browser Extensions podcast. Here we're going to be talking about all cool things related to browser extensions, the cool browser extensions that are being uploaded this week, the updates going on with them, and also talking about browser extensions in general. So if you're a fan even a little bit of browser extensions, you're in for a treat because we're going to be diving deep. With us, we have me, Stefan, and Louis. We're the maintainers of this open source framework called Plasmo, and we have a company called Plasmo, which makes it easy to build browser extensions. And we have Mo. Mo, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Hi. Yeah, guys. My name is Mo. I'm a browser extension engineer, just always working on, I love browser extensions. I love extending software and I love browsers. So I found myself the perfect place to build things was browser extensions. And I just love building browser extensions that push the limits of browsers and uh, by building features that kind of seem like features into the browser themselves, right? But lots of people have requests for features into browsers that don't exist. And I'd like to just go in and build those sometimes. And I also like to imagine how my browser would like, if I were to build a browser, what it would look like one day. And I use browser extensions sometimes to just prototype different things and different features. So yeah. That's awesome. I feel like we're really uh, blessed to have something like the browser extension ecosystem, just because there's so much software out there that's not extensible and you can't modify it to suit your needs. And I feel like we're, it's such a privilege to actually be able to take this thing that we use every day and build amazing stuff on top of it and also use other people's work to ad block, Grammarly, Honey, all these amazing tools we can leverage to really improve our workflow. That's why I think every day I think, dang, it's really awesome that we have this like browser extension tech. And there, there's some people that I know, they actually, this is a true story. We're about to get a job at Stripe just so they can make push one line of code to change something in Stripe because it was bugging them a lot. And they ended up not going through the plan, but that was actually something they wanted to do. And the reason they had to go through this whole thing, and I even heard an Apple, that someone at Apple did the same thing where he quit one week after he joined just so he can push a commit to fix something. He literally joined the company just so to fix one little thing that was bothering him. And that's really the power that extensions give, right? Like we have all this software we're using, let's actually extend it and make it do what we want instead of having to go through all these weird paths to get there. That's the beauty of extensible software and open source software as well. You can go in there and push a commit whenever you want and assuming it's good, it's going to get integrated into the code base or you can go and build an extension. So those are definitely two better methods rather than getting yourself hired at a company just so you can change a line of code. One, one thing that you, you brought this up and I, I've been thinking a lot about this. The reason why I, as a developer, love open source software is because I can do that, right? If I don't like something, I can make a change to it. Extensions give you that option in closed source software, which is really powerful on the front end, right? What is the equivalent of an extension on the back end? Microservices, right? Microservices. Can you integrate your own microservice into like Stripe, for example? Right. I, that's, that, 
what you're talking about is precisely what Webhook is trying to. That's why we are seeing a lot of this push in a lot of Webhook company. There are companies strictly focused on Webhook so that you can integrate it to API or extending another API right, with Webhook API through Webhook. Yeah, Webhooks definitely. Or another instance of an extension on the backend side is the, for example, the extension we spoke about in the last episode of TLDV and how they're hooking into a Google Meet meeting using Google Meet's extension platform. And that runs on the server, right? Remember there, that extension is joining meetings via a bot and that is via the, the Google servers, essentially. Uh, yeah, that, that's an example of, of extensions through server. Now those are tricky because each implementer will have to build their own extension platform. For example, Google Meet will have to build their own extension platform that can run on their servers. And the biggest issue with that is security. It's a lot harder to build secure systems in the, on, when you have third-party code running on your servers rather than browser extensions that are running in the client. So yeah, they do definitely exist, but I think they're like little different beasts in a sense. It's a, I would say it's trickier to implement a, an extension platform on a server rather than a client side in a browser. Yeah. So there's a, there's this YouTube video that was trending. The YouTube video talk about which one is the most secure browser. The video covers the three big browsers, at least today. I think in the next couple of years, it's going to be some disruption in that space. But anyways, yeah, so Chrome, Firefox, and Edge. And what the, the YouTube video creator did was he wrote a Python script that opens 300 known malicious sites in each one of the web browsers. And you know, some sites try to download malicious software. I think that's actually what most of the sites are doing. And he checks how many of those, uh, how many uh, downloads were able to go through in each browser. I think the most secure one was Edge with 100% coverage. And the other two browsers, Chrome and Firefox, around 93, 90, 95% coverage. So, so yeah, I guess with, I don't know what his, he, I don't know if he released the script and or the sites that, that used the malicious sites, but with his tests, apparently Edge is the most secure browser. When you look at what is secure, I guess it depends on who are you trying to protect and what is it that you're trying to protect. That browser isn't actually scanning the file. It's not figuring out whether this thing is malicious or not. All it's doing is hashing that file and then sending that hash over to, let's say if it's Chrome, it's sending it to Google servers. If it's Edge, it's sending it to Microsoft servers. And it's just comparing to a database of known malicious files. And if it finds that this file was indeed in the known malicious files database, it will block the download. So for a regular kind of commodity malware, Microsoft's probably going to be the best, right? Because they have windows and they have all this data and telemetry on all the malicious files out there. So they're probably pretty good at catching these commodity threats. Now the question becomes, if I create my own malware, let's say Stefan, I create my own malware and I send it to you guys, none of these browsers will catch it, right? Because it's not in their database. So when they hash the right. file and they upload the hash, nothing will happen. Now for me, I think the most secure in terms of just thinking about the actual browser, not this hashing and this file thing 
but like the browser itself, is it secure? Will the browser ever leak any data to a website about me? Will the browser ever have some sort of vulnerability that can allow a website to run code outside of the browser's process and into onto my computer and then maybe get root and like put viruses on my computer and so on? I would use something that's not common because when you use something common, it has a lot, a much larger reason for threat actors to target it because it's so common. So if you use Chrome, like maybe use Brave instead, because maybe the offsets for the bytes are going to be different and the exploits won't work, things like that. And that's actually one of the reasons why Android is sometimes thought of as a little bit more resilient towards exploits, because there's so many different Android versions and so many, I don't know what you call them, distros of Android and all of them are, have OEM like different stuff. And that just makes it so much harder to do exploits. So yeah, that's my two cents about this whole. The things you mentioned, keeping your data private, cross-site scripting and uh, injection attacks and having code executed outside the intended environment. Those are the real kind of security measures that should be, um, measured and checked in browsers rather than a file being downloaded and then it's hash being checked in the server. I think all of them come together, should come are all, they're all factors, right. In, in determining whether a browser is secure or not, but I agree with you and I, in the fact, in the notion that downloading malicious software and malicious files, it's not that much big of a concern compared to the other factors. And I think just because of users kind of knowledge nowadays where users, browser users, our internet users are smarter than we were 10, 15 years ago. And we're, we are, we're not as susceptible to malicious sites. We know where we are, um, in terms of the, our, the domains we're on and the websites and the apps we're using. So I think it's not that much of a concern. Most of the concern is things that the user cannot see, attacks that the user cannot see, doesn't know what's happening. Yeah, zero click attacks. And so I think that's where the real kind of measure comes in, measuring how secure a browser really is. So this YouTube video here, a clickbaity title, it's called Most Secure Browser, Chrome, Firefox, and Edge. Although the test is really cool and the script he wrote is really cool. Yeah, I, I do agree with you that there are more other important security factors that should be taken in. Well, we're on this topic of security here, actually, I'm going to bring up something related to browser extensions. So the current process of updating browser extensions is via the, the Chrome web store or whatever other web store the extension platform lives on. So if I want to make a change and update to my browser extension, I have to go through the web store and they have to review it. And the reason for this is because the Google, for example, can make sure that the publishers, the code being updated to browser extensions are secure, right? They have more control over them if they go through a store and a review process, right? But I know you guys are proposing new methods of building and updating browser extensions that are more aligned with just traditional, uh, like web pages just you push an update to the server and then that's how the browser extension gets updated right so malicious code entering in, into the process there could be really dangerous so what do you guys think are some ways that can prevent this from happening when you download a program on your computer 
that is an order of magnitude more powerful than a Chrome extension. It can access all your files. It can do all these things. It can proxy things. It can basically perform on your behalf. And those programs that you run any sort of code and they can also feasibly have something where they can download a new update, apply it to themselves without going any review process. I think this idea of a review process is an antithesis of the free internet. And I think that security is used a lot of times as a justification for it when really I think the justification for it goes all the way back to Apple wants 30% of all of your in-app purchases and so on. And if you don't comply, then they will take you down. So the idea is you have this central player that wants to dictate their policy. And if you don't agree with it, they will take you down under the guise of security. And that's my philosophy around review processes in general. I think that if a threat actor wanted to get through the review process and ship a malicious extension, they can do it very easily. And do you think this also applies to manifest version three? We talked to a, a browser extension engineer, you know how, <laughs> okay, this is going to sound crazy. Their content script is 19 megabytes in size. So every single time mm. someone opens a new tab and then goes to a page, they're loading 19 megabytes of JavaScript onto the page every single time. So I think this idea of performance makes sense, but that can also be taken into this idea that, yeah, maybe they're just using performance to got the ad blockers. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I really do believe that the new manifest version three helps in performance and security. Now, whether or not it does, I don't know, but I think they do have that intent and, uh, but they also do have the intent to make browser extensions weaker as well, especially ad blockers. And I think in general as well, we've talked about this previously, how they don't really want browser extensions to outshine the browser itself. Right. The platform is just hosting, like you, you can be the infrastructure where you can be Amazon Web Services that hosts a website, right? And then the website can start selling illegal chemical, right? Mm-hmm. And until the FBI came to Amazon and told you, hey, this guy's selling some stuff, you should take him down, right? I don't think Amazon have to worry too much until that happens. Un- unless, right, that happened too many times. And then now there's a whole regulation. And now suddenly there's whole, this whole term of services in which it they have to explicitly themselves any of this. Yeah, for me, it's this idea that you have to balance. Chrome, obviously, from their brand perspective, they don't want to have malicious Chrome extensions. They don't want to have extensions that are, I don't know, let's say adult in nature or something like that, right? It will hurt their brand. So that's why they take the position that they want to take these down or so on and so forth. And the other thing about MV3, there are indeed security implications that are great in mv3 land for example remote code right you can't load remote code anymore i think that's gonna massively help the chrome review team because now everything that they'll need to review is within the actual zip file or the crx that they're reviewing rather than having to go look at some random like website that is they're pulling the extensions pulling code from 
And if you think about it, during review time, that could be totally legit. Or they can even have an IP geofence where the website would return like non-malicious code if it's coming from a Google IP. And then, or even let's say you're targeting users in, I don't know, let's just say like Kazakhstan, right? And your extension is primarily a Kazakh extension. All the reviewers are going to be in America. So just set the IP block to make it so that it doesn't return malicious code in America. The reviewers are going to look at your extension and say, oh, it looks fine. And then all your users that are going to be in Kazakhstan are actually going to get this malicious code because it's they're going to see that it's from coming from Kazakhstan. So that's where I would say that's a very useful thing for MV3. So no evals and things like that. But then there are like definitely huge drawbacks and it definitely hurts the ecosystem as a whole. So for me, I think the question isn't, is Google evil or something like that? or like these browsers, whatever, it's more so, I, I don't agree that they should hold this power in the first place. It's fine if they want to have their own web store, feel free, but other people should also have their own web stores. Why is it that Google's the only one that can have one? It doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. And I and like, they, they have their own principles and that's great, but others should have their own as well and host their own. Allowing anybody to, to have an extension store. I think that's actually really interesting. And that's what you guys are planning to do at Plasmo, right? Is to have your own store that hosts browser extensions that users can download from. We are building an internal platform, an internal web store, and we target very specifically for developer. Because this is the thing that developer have, right? The developer has a huge problem with fric- friction to deploy, to test with their production endpoint. It's, it's a huge friction to test. So that's why we're building this out just for the developer. But then eventually we want to scale this. We want to scale solution out such that it can be self-deployed, self-hosted. So that a company, for example, can use the Plasma store internally for themselves. Yeah, like Stefan was saying earlier, I don't see any reason why they all have to be hosted on the Chrome Web Store especially for that use case, for the use case of a company wanting to just have a Chrome extension be used internally at their company. If they don't want to use the Chrome store right now, the current method is to just manually send the CRX file to all their employees and have them manually download it. Yeah. So you just want to point out that you cannot actually add a CRX. I feel like we're playing musical chairs. You can, if it's Chromium on Chromium like the open source version of Google Chrome, you can drag and drop a CRX file into the extensions page and it will work. But that doesn't work on Google. So it's even, so what do they have to do? They have to load an unpacked extension. Precisely. Yeah, there's always that. Yeah. Is that the only way which is just not optimal, right? It'd be so much better if they could just go to a link, press add to Chrome and boom, it's installed. Corporate development, that's kind of the team name for these sort of things. And they would do what we're doing here at Plasmo with the web store. So these big companies, they already have their internal web stores. It's built up like they had to have hire an engineering team, had to actually build this out, make sure it worked, set up this way. How do you actually do these tests? How do you make sure that it only goes to your trusted testers? All this other stuff you have to think about. And these big companies have it, but what we want to do eventually, you know, as we continue building out Plasmo, 
is we want to make it so that this is like a plug and play solution. If you're a smaller company and you want to have extensions for your team, and you want to have it be tightly controlled and stuff like that, maybe you don't want Google, you don't want it to be uploaded on the Google web store and stuff. You just use Plasmo and you're ready to go. You don't need to hire this engineering team and have all this other like tech that and all this other stuff you have to maintain. So that's the idea. Mm-hmm. And was that your your guys' first intention with Plasmo or did you guys start with the, what did you guys first start with? Was it this vision of building a browser extension store or did you guys start out with the, the extension platform, the library that sort of abstracts away building Chrome extensions and makes it easier to build Chrome extensions. Yeah. What did you guys start out with and how did it all get laid out? So I would say that the first, so we did a lot of user interview initially before we build anything. And one of the feedback, one of the main complaint with the Chrome web store was how slow it was to iterating a product, to iterating an idea. And so that's when we have this idea of, okay, let's make an alternative store that we can upload to. And so Stefan went on this whole debugging sphere and like basically do the reverse engineering the Chrome Chromium code to figure out how to applying the Chrome policy. But yeah, but after that, so we actually built out a store first and we actually had this whole vision of whether we can deploy this internally as well, eventually. But then as we move on, as we build out that, we found that building extension also sucked. Building the extension itself sucks. You have to know all this stuff. And we had the idea as well in the back of our mind, but then we didn't execute on it for a bit until I'm like, yeah, you know what? Might as well spend two two weeks and get get it on. Yeah. Yeah. The big thing that how we got started was like that. We saw that the iteration was really tricky. A lot of developers saying iteration was their biggest pain point. But one thing I just want to add to that, the first thing, so like generally the idea of Plasmo has been around solving the problems of browser extension developers, right? That's like the gen- generic, the general theme of Plasmo. But the first thing that we ever built to solve any pain point of a browser extension developer was BP, our browser platform publisher. So that was the first ever thing we did. It was a GitHub action where it would let you submit to all the different web stores via a GitHub, either work via like automatically with every commit, or you can do a dispatch where you can publish manually on GitHub. And the idea there was interesting because it's an open source product. Literally nobody knew about us. Nobody used it. Right. So how did we actually get people to start using it? We compiled a data set of like over like thousands of open source Chrome extensions. And we went through one by one sending pull requests to integrate B into their projects. We did this, like we, we sent like 10 pull requests a day and we did this for about a month and we got a lot of different users. And then from that point, we started working on that fun stuff with the web store and so on. And then ultimately building out the framework after one of the things we wanted to do was have an excuse to talk to these people, right? So when you submit a PR, people are much more open to talking with you. And that's when we heard, yeah, also like developing this extension is really hard and stuff. Yeah. There you guys heard it, people. This is the new cold email strategy. Send a PR, man. Send a a PR. PR. 
that's well, definitely going to get someone's attention. Think, All right. So in, in, in general, would you guys say that this strategy worked out of just sending PRs to the GitHub action and people actually integrated the actual PR that you guys sent or was it just a method of getting their attention? No, they definitely did. And there's even an extension that has over a million users using our GitHub action. And we did that, we got that just by sending a PR. One of the things I did early on was I would connect with Chrome extension developers on LinkedIn. I would message them, I would call email them. And Lewis looked at me and he's like, what are you doing? Let's just submit PRs. And I'm like, okay, that probably sounds better because developers care about code. They don't care about words. So if you can show them the code, right. they're much right. more receptive. On LinkedIn, it's saturated right. full of salespeople, but GitHub is still the serene land where the salespeople still haven't infiltrated. It's avatar before before the sort of Marines came in and ruined the people's day. So that's how I view GitHub. This strategy actually apply more for early stage tech company. If you late stage, it's a bit hard, but when you're early stage, you have to also work on your product as well. And it's... And there's no better way to improve your product than having someone else try it. And they tell you, hey, this doesn't work on my project. Oh, hey, I want to customize it a little bit. And now you have to fix the whole problem. You fix it the right way. And I had to, otherwise they wouldn't merge the PR. So in a sense, when I submit a PR to them, I'm actually submitting PR to myself too, to improve my product, to accommodate for them. Because if it cannot accommodate in these 50 cases, then my software simply doesn't it, it, it's not genuine enough to be a software to be a good software right i like how you guys thought outside the box there lewis and came up with a strategy i think lots of early stage companies products or other libraries frameworks can use a strategy definitely you can actually see the strategy being employed being applied in uh, in actually enterprise i think a lot of enterprise has dev dev real right dev relationship dev roles, uh, yeah yeah, DevRel, yeah, those DevRel people. And also uh, kind of community. But a lot of them actually do is do enterprise integration so that they would go to company and propose an integration with those mm. companies, right? And they built it out. They just built integration and then ship it. And I think that's that, that's the new, that's actually the growth hack strategy that I've seen. Cool. So that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time on the Browser Extension Podcast. And if you have any requests or any feedback, send it our way. We love to get any sort of feedback and we'll see you next time. Take care.